Welcome to the May edition of Information's Crossroads Podcast, where we promise to deliver all the project finance news in 30 minutes or less, or we'll deliver you a free pizza. Joining us today is DJ Gribben, now a senior operating partner at Stone Peak Infrastructure Partners and also non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. Formerly, he was a member of the Trump administration and chief architect behind the proposed $1 trillion infrastructure plan from 2018. Thank you for joining us on today's program, DJ. John, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. So uh, we might as well get right into it as uh, Trump and the Democratic leadership met last week to discuss a new proposed infrastructure bill. This time, the stakes clearly raised to $2 trillion. What do you think's really changed in the tea leaves here, which uh, could or could not lead to a bill being reached this time around? Uh, so your timing for this podcast is fantastic, because as you said, last week, we had a relatively historic moment where the president, the Speaker of the House, and the Senate Minority Leader all got together, along with other congressional leaders, and decided the target was going to be raising $2 trillion for infrastructure. Um, while that sounds good, there is there are some challenges with that number. Primarily the fact that no one has come up with a good way to raise $2 trillion or a trillion or half a trillion uh, to spend on infrastructure. The second part of it is that the federal government in this country has a relatively small role to play in infrastructure. The federal government funds about uh, 25% and owns about 8% of infrastructure in the U.S. So having a big push from infrastructure at the national level uh, is a bit unusual and would take the U.S. off its historic path of how it funds and develops infrastructure. If a deal is reached, what impact would that have on private investment in uh, infrastructure? It depends on the shape and the nature of the deal. If you have a $2 trillion deal, meaning that there's $2 trillion available at the federal level to spend on what is primarily state and local infrastructure, I think that pretty much destroys the market here in the U.S. Because no elected official, if given the choice between, okay, I can raise my own funds here um, or I can use private equity or I can just get free funds, in essence, from the federal government – Every mayor, every governor, every county executive is going to sort of default to option three and say, all right, let me go. Let me spend all my time and effort going to the federal government trying to get more as opposed to going through the cost and the expense and the time it takes to put together a good, robust P3 transaction in their jurisdiction. Now, on the other side of the fence, um, as uh, candidates have emerged to challenge President Trump, Another proposal has uh, been making the rounds from Senator Klobuchar, which would be back to $1 trillion. Uh, But there's actually a game plan there proposed, um, according to to her. Number one would be a $650 million federal spending increase, uh, meaning taxes would go up. And then the establishment of a national infrastructure bank to fill in the gaps, which has often been talked about as well. Uh, What do you think about that uh, proposal? Another good question. The The challenge with Klobuchar's proposal um, is twofold. One, having 600, again, having $600 billion, whether it's from for taxes or some other source, that's a hard amount to spend federally. Um, secondly, as you know, you can't fill the gap, an, a, a funding gap, with a financing tool. And there's a fair amount of confusion in D.C. right now about the difference between funding and financing. So, you know, bonds, uh, an infrastructure bank – private equity, these are all ways to finance revenue streams and to get the most, ideally, out of a funding source, but they're not funding. So um, often people confuse the fact that we'll have an infrastructure bank and that will give us money. It's like, well, you can have a bank, but you got to capitalize the bank. And then where is that capital coming from? 
okay, you have to raise funds from another source to provide the capital to put in that bank. Now, you can create revolving funds. State infrastructure banks have done this across the country. So it's not necessarily a bad financing tool, but I think a lot of policy leaders get confused and think, okay, if I have a bank, then I have money. It's like, no, no, if you have a bank, you have a place to lend money from, you then have to go out and create the bank and then also capitalize that with funding, whether that's higher taxes or some other funding source. Um, we've covered um, other infrastructure banks, um, Pan Americas, I guess. Um, there's the established now, the Can- Canadian Infrastructure Bank, uh, run by Nick Hahn. And then, um, you know, obviously down in South America, there's any number of sort of nationalized uh, development banks, such as BNDS in Brazil. Are any of them models for how the U.S. should think about an infrastructure bank, in your view? Um, the, the challenge, again, with an infrastructure bank at the federal level is that the federal government doesn't have assets that that bank would lend to. So what the bank would do is the bank would be lending to state governments who would then be paying back the federal government. So the first threshold question would be, well, why don't you just create state infrastructure banks, which we have uh, and are somewhat underutilized? Um, and then secondly, a lot of people argue, I think, with with uh, a fair amount of accuracy that TIFIA, in essence, serves as this country's de facto infrastructure bank, right? Because what you want is you want uh, the government to look at deals on a project-by-project basis, uh, provide a subsidy that helps bridge the gap uh, to make these projects commercial. And TIFIA has filled that role. We could argue whether TIFIA has been effective or could be more effective. One of the things that we had proposed as part of the administration's plan was expanding both TIFIA and PABS to all governmental infrastructure. So whether it's a highway, whether it's water, whether it's a port, whatever it is, if it's governmental infrastructure, it ought to be eligible TIFIA, uh, which provides obviously subsidized uh, credit rates at treasuries and private activity bonds. Because again, another thing that's unique about the U.S. is uh, states, municipalities who own the infrastructure have access to municipal debt market, which includes tax-exempt debt. And so what we were trying to do is say, all right, how do we, without creating another bureaucracy and another office in D.C. that everyone has to go through that will invariably promulgate lists of regulations that people have to go through and check off in order to comply with that infrastructure bank's desires, instead of doing that, let's use TIFIA, let's use PABS, let's get the same net economic effect as an infrastructure bank, but do it in a way that doesn't carry with it reams of regulations. So what became of that uh, proposal? So the proposal uh, was issued um, February 14th of uh, last year. And uh, at that point in time, there was not a huge enthusiastic response <laughs> because one of the challenges of infrastructure is, you're, is we're swimming upstream a little bit in terms of people's expectations. So when people hear, when you go out to the American public and you say, should we have better infrastructure? Do you support that or not? Overwhelmingly, 70, 80 percent, people say yes. Um, unfortunately, most of those people say yes because they think that someone else is going to pay for their infrastructure. And so you get in this kind of Lake Wobegon effect where everyone thinks we're going to end up above average, where everyone will be above average. Everyone will get more back from the federal government than they put in. Uh, economic reality doesn't allow for that. And so when you start having the conversation of do you want infrastructure? Yes. Are you willing to pay for it? Not surprisingly, you lose a chunk of that support. And so the proposal that we had put forth in essence was what we need for infrastructure, two main things. We need additional funding. And we need a permitting process that allows us to get projects up and going faster, right? So we had a whole section of the bill devoted to the permitting process. Uh, 
probably the most important but the dullest thing that we proposed is uh, permitting reform. There are pieces of that that are being taken and working through the administration now, so that's pretty encouraging. On the funding side, you know, if you expect to be given money and someone shows up and says, I'll give you an incentive for you to raise more money, uh, that's not as appealing. So we did not meet with people's expectations, which was, hey, the federal government will just give me funds. Part of the reason why we didn't do that, and this is another kind of uh, economic dislocation that people have when they think about infrastructure, is much of the complaint around the administration's bill on the funding side was in two different camps. The first is it's, it's, you know, there's not enough federal funding and the federal government should spend more because state and local governments have done their part. The second was it relies on private equity. Um, and as we just talked about, the second part is just flat out wrong. You, you can't have private equity as a funding source. It's a financing source. On the first side, it's interesting that people consider um, if, if they consider federal funds to be separate apart from state and local, even though they're exactly the same taxpayers, right? So if you're living in New York and you're paying taxes to New York City, you're paying taxes to the city of New York, you're paying taxes to the federal government, you're the one paying taxes. So if New York can't spend more on infrastructure because it'd be too much burden on you, having the federal money, federal government take funds from you and then give them back to you is not a more efficient way to deliver infrastructure. So I think one thing is that, that we haven't had a robust conversation on infrastructure pretty much since um, the Eisenhower National Highway Interstate Program, right? And so people have – it's a relatively new, nascent uh, issue area for us to be talking about at the national level. Lots of conversation at the state and local level. And so because it's relatively new, you have this disconnect between what people are expecting the policy would deliver and what, in fact, it can deliver. Well, at the state level, um, you know, I think after some time we're seeing bigger projects emerge somewhere along the lines or at least talk of it. Um, The uh, Hawaii LRT, which has been under a ton of scrutiny, is advancing finally um, in its own procurement. Uh, And through the articles we've published in information, um, you know, there's a possibility of both SR400 in Georgia and I-55 uh, in Illinois going to um, uh, a P3 process, potentially, uh, large managed toll lane projects. And then, of course, Maryland's, which um, now has, I think, three different names, that project. But it's a $7.6 billion managed lanes project, which is going to be procured in different tranches, um, likely going to see numerous uh, oppositions from local groups and lawsuits, probably. Uh, based on what we've heard so far, but it is a very large project. There's a very important need for it, as me and DJ could probably testify as former residents and current residents of Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area. Uh, but it's it's real. It's a process that's going to go on pretty soon. Um, do you have any thoughts on uh, these projects specifically or any thoughts on state procurements uh, getting a little bit looser this year as to, to what's going on there? I mean, I think it's encouraging that you have an increasing number of states that are looking towards P3s as a tool to better deliver projects. Um, Pete Ron, who's the Secretary of Maryland, 
is, is a friend as well. He never thinks small, so he's tackling one of the worst uh, congestion choke points in the nation. But as you mentioned, a fair amount of pushback from people who are worried about how that's going to affect their community and are we further incentivizing using fossil burning vehicles? And so that, that is an area, that is a debate that needs to, to continue on. But I think the fact that states and localities are starting to realize that P3s offer enormous potential in terms of the ability to shift risks from the public sector to the private sector such that you get projects built on time, on budget, and delivered relatively quickly uh, is quite encouraging. Sure. I guess the same residents could make the argument about modernizing the D.C. metro as well, which would offset then the use of fuels, but that's an, another <laughs> argument for another day. It is. Um, the other real positive development, and I think the true storyline for us in our coverage of P3s this year has been universities. Um, no matter where these other state projects are, they're in their infinite stages while these university deals are actually getting done. Uh, housing projects are getting done at universities. Um, the power plant projects, I think there's real incentive to get these projects done as well. Um, slightly different class of bidder potentially in terms of like who's on your team and on the technical side, obviously. Um, but there, um, there's universities seem to be really encouraged. You have aging ha- uh, dormitories, you have aging power plants. Why not see what the market can give you? Um, and there's been a lot of uh, enthusiastic response to that. Um, what are your thoughts on this trend? Uh, again, an encouraging trend. Universities are a great place to do P3s because their governance structure is relatively simple. Uh, going back to the days when – so I've been doing P3s for about 20 years in the U.S. Back to when design, build, warrant was really sort of cutting edge and uh, super innovative. And you know, from my time at Federal Highways and then developing projects with Macquarie and General Counsel at USDOT – one of the things I found if, in terms of identifying a market where there's high opportunity for P3s, it's look to the leadership, right? Find a place where you have a, an innovative leader and you have a sensible governance structure. I can mention, I probably won't call them out specifically, a number of jurisdictions in the U.S. where you should just never go to look for a P3 because the, the politics of that area is so complicated, it's virtually impossible to get anything innovative through flip to university and you have relatively streamlined governance um, and their core mission isn't providing that infrastructure service. Their core mission is education. So there's a lot of excitement now in the U.S. market around airports and there should be. But one of the challenges working with authorities is those authorities exist to run that infrastructure. So you show up as a concessionaire and say, hey, listen, I can do your job better than you can do it. <laughs> Let me step in and take over this part. Now, some of those have been done, and kudos to the, the leaders of those institutions for acknowledging that you know, they can bring in some experts and squeeze out additional value uh, for their constituents. Universities, you don't run into that problem. They're there to do something totally different than deliver infrastructure. And I think to a large degree, they're happy to see the private sector show up and take that off their plate so they can refocus on their core mission. Excellent. So um, another thing we've uh, picked up on uh, has been some of these uh, procurements. um, And I wouldn't say it's a new trend, to be honest. Um, But, you know, obviously you go through a procurement and you come to a decision and you decide a design build is better than or design bid build is better than DBFOM or a true P3. Um, And I think the Pennsylvania Broadband Project was probably a true measure of this um, because they decided the cost just wasn't worth it in their own procurement. 
for uh, doing broadband for the the pen dot. Um, what, what are your thoughts on design bid or design bid build here? And um, is this something you think cities will, or, or cities or states will increasingly look to, or is it just sort of project by project? Yeah, I think it will be the last project by project. I mean, you really do need a fit for purpose procurement model. So if you're doing something relatively small and relatively routine, P3 obviously doesn't make a whole lot of sense. On the flip side of that, if you've got something that's unique that you've never procured before, you've never built before, it's sizable, has lots of risks, P3 doesn't make lots of sense. And then, you, you know, all of the different procurement models that in between design, bid, build, and a full-blown DBFOM should be considered depending on the size of the project, the complexity of the project, the amount of risk involved, and the private sector's willingness to incur risk for the project. One of the themes... Uh which has been harped upon, of course, as asset recycling, which is a true, um, you know, been a true driver in Australia for um, P3 activity. Um, and it's been talked about as a benefit over here in the U.S. But again, with a lack of a lot of real P3 projects out there, it's hard to illustrate over here in the U.S. necessarily. Um, as we were talking before we went uh, on the air today, there, there was one true case of asset recycling we saw recently in a deal struck in Edison, New Jersey, uh, between Carlisle and um, the city of Edison for their wastewater system, uh, which would basically involve a $100 million upfront payment. Um, and in return, there'd be nearly $500 million in terms of modernizing a, a water and wastewater system in Edison, in New Jersey, um, after clearing, of course, for uh, authorities uh, to get to that decision. Um, but nevertheless, $100 million goes to the city uh, and in return, um, you know, the tax pay, the, the rate payer gets hit somewhat, just a little bit of a per month surcharge for both water and sewage uh, as a result. But, um, you know, what are your thoughts on asset recycling now? And, um, you know, what's the, the best use case for it in the U.S., would you say? Yeah, I mean, one of the best use cases is um, probably the first asset recycling project we had in this country was Indiana Toll Road. Governor Daniels for $3.8 billion concessioned the Indiana toll road and then took that money and reinvested it back in roads all across the state. So for that period of time, Indiana had the only fully funded uh, state transportation infrastructure plan in the country. So it's been done. I think the challenge with asset recycling is closely connecting the fact that, okay, we're going to give up, we the government are going to give up a little bit of control around this asset in exchange for a payment. And then the most important part is being very transparent and clear with the people who are utilizing that asset, where that payment is going and how it's benefiting you know, them, their community, their state, whatever it is. Um, just brownfield concessions are tricky. And I think they were looked at early days as just a quick cash way to cash out some value. Uh, and that is true. If you want to build long-term sustainable support for P3s, it's very important to be transparent on the benefits of that modernization to the taxpayers involved. What do you think, um, you know, has been a true, just, just by observing the Australian model, what's been the true benefit of Australian recycling, yeah, sorry, the Australian asset recycling program over there in terms of where it's cycling back into, you know, in terms of municipality and how it applies, again, to the U.S.? I think it, it, it was very helpful in, in showing that, listen, the government owns these assets that that have uh, captive capital that's not being utilized for the public's benefit. In a way, that's a waste. And so, therefore, we should move that asset into a hand 
where we can realize that value for the public and then return that value to the public in a manner that um, the public desires is politically popular. So I don't think it's overly complicated. I think that the challenge here, as you mentioned in opening the question, is there are just not that many assets that fall into this, you know, what can readily be uh, concession and return value. Going back to what we were talking about before in terms of airports. So you go to an airport and say, we're going to concession this whole asset. We're going to release this value. But you have to keep that value. In most cases in the U.S. legally, you have to keep it on the airport. So you're very limited in terms of the benefits you can capture from recycling. Now, you can do a terminal, obviously, and, and release that value and use it to construct a better terminal or to use it for other purposes in the airport. Um, but I think the like when you talk about P3s in the U.S., lots of times it cycles back to this fundamental core problem of how fragmented our ownership structure is. We have tens of thousands of water systems that are owned by different entities. Uh, we've got 3,300 counties that own all kinds of infrastructure and obviously 50 states. And so that super fragmented infrastructure makes it hard to find a jurisdiction in which here's an asset that we can monetize. Oh, and there's also a need in that same jurisdiction that we can take that value and bring it back to that jurisdiction in a way that the public would be supportive of. Interesting. Without even having asked the question, DJ, I noticed you mentioned airports twice in this conversation. Um, so I'm going to conclude uh, our, our discussion with airports um, because uh, that's what people like talking about. And sure, there's a $13 billion worth of projects going on at JFK. Uh, there's finally some projects gestating at LaGuardia and Nork, which would get people excited. Uh, and then after that, there's a whole lot of speculation about a lot of things. Um, St. Louis being tangible or could be coming up soon. Uh, and then uh, long rumored projects. And then uh, airports uh, doing going to the ancillary services, uh, Conrax uh, and people movers, uh, as LAX will probably tell you that. What are your thoughts on airport privatization is that wave coming or you figure to your earlier point about authorities giving over control that that's not going to happen uh i think it it's air first of all airports are fantastic for private sector involvement because they're shopping malls with runways right so no one does shopping malls better than the private sector so it makes all the sense in the world plus the customer focus, the consumer experience that the private sector can bring to these projects is sorely needed in air travel in the U.S. So there's a bunch of potential benefit there. But before you cross the speculative line, you talked about LaGuardia and JFK, Newark. Note all the same owner. Oh, and an owner with lots of other infrastructure challenges beyond just the airport. So I think the bigger question for the U.S. is can you move beyond the Conrack's and the people movers on airports that um, are not the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And I think that's that's an open question. It's going to be hard. Certainly terminal projects help, um, but you're working with the same fundamental dynamic that limits the benefits of asset recycling, which is the owner of those assets has limited other places to hook any value that's released from a P3. In other words, I think what we're saying is maybe you should go visit Europe to see what's possible. Uh, Don't abandon the U.S. The U.S. is a fantastic no, no, market, no. but it's highly fragmented and it's hard and it's going to require a lot of creativity. Uh, I only kid. Um, anyway, on that note, 
Next month, you can hear DJ opine on today's U.S. infrastructure landscape at our own USP3 conference at the 925 morning panel on June 12th at the Midtown Hyatt, alongside Doug Freed of Norton Rose, Dwayne Callender of the Build America Bureau, Sam Chai of Kiwit, Naraya Haltawanger of ACS Infrastructure, Mark Bradshaw of Macquarie, and Anthony Phillips of John Lang. Uh, on that note, DJ, thanks for coming today. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Work out. <laughs> <laughs>